Welcome to Airwave. Airwave is a conversation hosted by me, Morgan Page, where music and technology converge to tell the stories behind the artists and the architects of creativity and technology. Radio is where I first discovered electronic music in the countryside of Vermont, and music and technology provided the path forward. Airwave is an exploration of how people make their art and how technology plays an essential role in the process. The show is largely conversational, but doesn't shy away from going deep and technical in the process. For me, the difference before and, and after Chester was before him, when a DJ was playing in a club, nobody was facing the DJ. Everybody was just facing the center of the room, right? And then when he did his Chester solo tour in Holland, uh, everybody was facing him suddenly. And I, I remember I, f- I felt that was weird. Like, why is everybody looking that way? Suddenly the DJ was the, the center of attention instead of the music. All right, welcome back to another edition of Airwave. My guest this week is Mark Sixma. He is a trance and big room producer hailing from Breda, Netherlands. It's also the home of Hardwell and Tiesto. We go into how he got his original start winning a radio contest with Tiesto, uh, how he got into his collabs with Armin Van Buren, W&W, and Kashmir, and how he achieves that big room sound he's known for. So let's dive in. You're listening to Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. You know, learning, doing some of this recording is so, it's such a different way of approaching audio where you're used to singers and, and VSTs and plugins and things. But with this, it's so raw with voice. Uh-huh. You're like, it, you just, you really hear if it distorts or whatever. So like I'm, I've relearned gain staging now and yeah, like, like That's that. actually like a process of the whole production thing that I'm not really too familiar with. Like I never actually recorded uh, a vocalist in my studio. Oh, really? I've always like... Uh, I work with them and I'm being present when they record it, but it's like, uh, I, yeah, usually they just uh, listen to top lines and they send it over and then do my processing on it. Yeah. But actually the recording process, I, I've done, I recorded myself actually in a, in a few recent tracks just for like uh, convenience sake. Yeah. Well, not really like singing, but just more like, like uh, just some speech and then I, I vocal it and, you know, the, the vocal synth too is just, you know, really great yeah, plugin yeah. to get creative with. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so much work to have to comp the vocals and then you hear the song too many times. Yeah, it can be a problem. For me, that's always the, the when, when I'm just working on a track. After a few hours, I need to stop because then it's it sounds so familiar and familiarity usually uh, makes you think it's actually good. But so you lose kind of track whether it's good that you it's a good idea or yeah. that you've repeated it so much that it's familiar and you like it. Yeah. It's so like yeah. I try to separate that always. The when I have like an idea going and work the next day on it, uh, and and listen fresh ears. If it's if it's if if I like it on the first listen, then I continue. If I don't like it, then do you give it? Yes, you just you let you sleep on it and then exactly. you listen in yeah. the morning. Re- reset your uh, yeah. I was trying ears. to get it down to a science. Like, could you have a playlist with songs in different keys and tempos to refresh the palette? Yeah, yeah. So it's you can just keep time. So you can keep working on it. You mean um, maybe that works? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Just totally trying to reset. But for me, the giving it time is always yeah. That's the that's the best way. Like fresh ears in the morning is uh, yeah. 
There's no shortcut to it. No, you just got to give it some time. I think it's the that's that's what I like to do at least for me. That works the best. So if you're road testing, if you're out in the car, do you you say okay, I'm gonna listen to this like three times and then I'm done, or when you when you're checking it on different monitors, different situations? I always like uh, I, I I listen uh, in my dad's studio. Uh, at, at their his, his his hi-fi installation, just which isn't anything like crazy, just uh, on my phone. And actually, I, I don't have a car, so yeah. <laughs> I don't do, do the car test. But uh, um, I, I using the, for me the, the most important one is is the club uh, because mainly I've been focused on making club tracks. So if it sounds good in the club, the, and it sounds good in my in my uh, studio, then usually it's it's already like yeah. It's, it's a pretty safe bet that it's gonna sound, you know, good uh, on those platforms, and then whether it's good for streaming is, is a different matter. But uh, for me, the production process while I'm producing is, is mainly I, I do both working on my headphones, half the track, and half of the track is on the on the speakers. So I do both, and if it sound, already sounds good on those two, then usually it's already like pretty pretty much there. Isn't it amazing how helpful headphones are? Actually, like I think yeah. some people say, don't mix on headphones and there's there's a reason for that advice, but yeah. but they really tell you when something is wrong. Just to be able to go back and forth, get that other opinion. For sure. I mean, I, I love actually. I, I I was a bit hesitant on working on headphones, and I have the for me the the most uh, the the disadvantage of working with headphones is actually that it's not comfortable after a while. Right. Uh, like Hot. after like after like two hours, like if you work with closed scans. But now I have these uh, semi opens with uh, the um, DT Pro. 88, I think, or no, 880. Uh, for me, that's it, it's so comfortable. I can work like four. It's very dynamic, like four or five hour. I can work without any even noticing I have them on. So they're they don't get hot in your ears because no. there's enough ventilation with the open back. Huh. Yeah, yeah. It's like for for me, like I don't need to mix in like a crowded space, so I don't need the closed scans. I just work in my studio, and and also for me that helps transitioning between monitors and and headphones. If I if I work with the the open uh, headphones. So which ones are they? They're bare dynamic. Uh, the DT Pro eight eighty, I think. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, they're like so so comfortable to wear. And for me, that's uh, and, and then then the transition from speakers to headphone isn't so big. If you work with closed scans and then listen to your speakers, it can be like two different worlds. Yeah. And you're a little bit lost and you need time to get adjusted again, like for me at least. Do you ever find that when you're touring, you come back with different ears and you have to readjust to the studio world again? Or is it is it more cohesive for you? No, I don't really... For me, that's not really a problem, honestly. I don't... Uh, you know, touring is touring and, and usually I only... I don't like to work on the road that much. I always like to be in, in my studio, uh, you know, full range keyboard, big monitor. Uh, I always have a lot of respect for the guys, you know, who can work on tracks on, on their laptop and then uh, just, just having a whole project done. For me, I don't know, I'm not used to it. Maybe that's it. Maybe I should give it a go. But for me, it's it's a bit of a hassle. Uh, I've, never, I've never succeeded in doing a, tra- a track like start to finish. I mean, I can finish. Yeah. Maybe with arrangement, it's helpful. Like if you're yeah, exactly. testing at the club, but it's so hard. You get to the hotel and the chair is the wrong height. Is you know the chair doesn't match the table, and then exactly, find, and then you're always interrupted. Someone's checking in. It's like oh, it's turned down service, and you then know. you forgot like to install this specific plugin that you're using. You're always and, missing like five plugins. Yeah. So for for me, it's like if either you do work on your laptop all the time, so it, you bring it into your studio and you work on it, and you work on it on the road. That's you know you can do that, but. 
for me, I, I just like to work in, in my my own environment. That's you know when I'm most comfortable, and that's usually when I get the best results. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard to you have the headphones. You know, maybe Subpack is helpful sometimes. I bring that on some trips from yeah. overseas, and that makes it a little more 3D, and you feel the bass. You can sidechain stuff a little easier. I haven't actually never used that. So how does it work? You you just wear it like uh it like like a backpack, or you can uh-huh. have it in the seat back position. Really? Fun. Yeah, it's fine. It's another thing to to wire up, and I, I've brought it on trips and forgotten the cable, and they're like, "Well, I hold this around for a two week China tour." And how heavy yeah, is it? <laughs> it's it's pretty light, but it's just okay. it's a little bulky. But yeah, uh, and you can use it for movies and stuff too. It's nice. Okay, nice. I never tried that. Yeah. Every advantage you can have on the road that keeps you inspired to make music is is great. But I'm I know I personally just spend more time doing edits and mashups. Yeah, and mashups is sort of what I love to do on the road. You know, is but and that's uh, I usually work in Cubase, but. Uh, like I, I, you, you work in Ableton uh, for mashups, Ableton for audio, actually audio processing. Ableton is like king for me. Yeah, they all have their yeah. strengths, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I'm used to Cubase, and for me, the mo- it doesn't matter which one you use. Honestly, you know, you can get so much with third-party plugins anyway. You know, so what it lacks, you can make up with third-party plugins usually. Uh, so for me, it's just how can I get my ID from my mind into the computer as fast as possible that's that's what counts so isn't cubase good with songwriting where you can see the chord uh what number chord you're in and like you can see the different modes there's something about Actually, for com- I, I've composition. never used that option really like the, the, for, i guess because um you know I, I play the piano a lot so i don't i don't fall back on that necessarily but uh for me like back in the day it was my dad was using cubase so um as a hobbyist and he was showing me around, and I had a. I, I was I started with FL Studio actually, but then I bought this uh, virus uh, rec synthesizer hardware, and I, FL didn't have any hardware support, so there was no way I could use it in FL Studio. So he said, "Okay, I'll show you Cubase," you know, and then I started. He was a producer? Huh? Was he a producer or was it just as a hobby? Yeah, just as a hobby. But yeah, he's been producing yeah pretty much this uh, yeah most of his adult life, I guess. Oh, yeah. So yeah, when I was a kid, when I was, uh, I would say eight to ten years old, he would put this uh, the Cork MS Twenty, you know, where you had to like uh, the module where you have to like connect the wires, etc., and just put it in my room for me to play around with. And uh, I was nice a lot of, I had no idea what I was doing. But, uh, <laughs> wow, yeah, and that's like a semi-modular one. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. a lot better than the Casio SK One I started with. Like, the I, what? I have Which a cat. This this like tiny little Casio keyboard where oh, you can yeah, sample your voice. I think Son Holo uses it now for some it, stuff. Is it like the, 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 with the white keys and then the, the very... Like, we, had a, we had a Casio as well yeah. like that. Yeah. It has a little sampler built in, like an 8-bit. It's I'm like, like uh, okay, so low sure. res. Yeah. <laughs> but you can sing into it and then play chords out of your voice. Oh, that's cool. I don't think ours had that. Yeah. How did the virus become so... I was like, they've sold so many of those things and they, it sounds amazing, but what... What happened with that? Like, how did that become so big? I feel like every studio, someone's got a virus sitting off to the side somewhere, and whether it's Martin Vorwerk's studio or every producer has the virus. Somewhere. I have it. I, I I haven't used it that much, honestly, because I, I'm. That's what I'm, everyone I'm, says. It's like the biggest conundrum. It sounds amazing. Everyone yeah, has it. No one's using me, it. Like, but but it's, it's it's not only the virus for me. It's like software versus hardware. Like I'm I'm all about convenience. So for me, software is more convenient than hardware always. So yeah, the cables drive me crazy. Cables, yeah, like and, just, and space, just space on your desk, you know. I, I I hardly use any hardware, so my desk is like clean and you know. And the virus, if you get the rack mount one, you've got to do the this crazy disassembly to get it in the actual rack. Really? 
Have you ever have you put it in the rack no, I itself? Never, no, no, no. It, you have to remove. You have to open the whole unit up. I think and buy really? these special ears. Yeah, it's a huge pain in the ass. So how <laughs> they didn't think about that before yeah. when they manufacture it? Because all which, the, which one? Which fires? At least for the the TI because uh, the because all the outputs are facing up yeah. on it, and you have to. You have to get another thing to put them out because they'll they'll just stick into your rack. Yeah. Oh my god! It's like who planned these things out? <laughs> so what's yeah. like? So you started early. How old were you when you were experimenting with these synths that your dad got you? Uh, I think that was around like ten years old. Wow. But I, I, I was, it was just for fun. I wasn't really pursuing anything like musically. I started DJing when I was twelve, uh, and and I only started producing really when I. When I went to university, uh, when I had some time on my hands, and uh, I actually I spent more time producing than learning learning production and then learning uh, my studies. So, um, but yeah, that that was like around 18 years old is when I started actually producing. 18. And then, how did you get into the whole scene with into the trance scene? All this. I mean, when did it become a profession for you? Well, I think like the the when I got introduced to the scene was through DJing. So I was in I, was, I grew up in Breda. Which, as I think the dance music enthusiasts know, is like the hometown of, of Chesto. And around Tiesto, the whole scene originated. So there was, the, he had his record store, and there was this club where he used to play. So it was like a, 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 like a, a tiny, a small group of people, but they were all helping each other out. So they were like, they had the Black Hole, the label was there as well, Black Hole Recordings. And the guys who were releasing on Black Hole were also the guys playing in the club and also the guys behind the counter in the, the record store. And Tiesto himself, he would be there as well, like listening to, you know, new promos on a Monday when he got back from tour. And then the white labels he would put, you know, if he didn't like them, he would just put them in the, for sale in the... Yeah. <laughs> and then I would obviously, you know, be like a 13-year-old kid waiting for those, for him to put the white labels in and listen to it. And, uh, and did he ever take a break? Did Tiesto ever take a break from touring? I don't, I don't. I didn't really follow him that much, but it was more local touring in the beginning, anyway. Right. So international DJing, like I think he's the one who invented that. You know, before him, there wasn't really many people doing like international shows. I still remember the. For me, the difference before and and after Chester was before him when a DJ was playing in a club. Nobody was facing the DJ. Everybody was just facing the center of the room, right? And then when he did his Chester solo tour in Holland. Uh, everybody was facing him suddenly, and I, I remember I, f I felt that was weird. Like, why is everybody looking that way? You know, it was like yeah, the a, DJ is the artist. Yeah, suddenly the DJ was the the center of attention instead of the music. Yeah, it was such a strange pivot. I feel like that happened in the states. It happened globally. Yeah, and I don't know if it was all at the same time because obviously Europe was way ahead of the U.S. with dance music for perfecting dance music, and then sort of came back to the U.S. after. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think with the the with Geta, it was more accessible, you know, when Geta did his, his big pop collaborations, dance pop collaborations, is when it opened the, the, the States up for, for dance music again, in, in like a, in a, in a major way. So, in, when you're a kid, are you looking at dance music and DJing as a viable career? Like, is that the career path? Like, you grow up, you want to be a soccer player? Is that how people perceive it? Uh, back then, no, I didn't think it would be I just but I grew up with dance music though like electronic dance music was very big in Holland as, as long as I can remember so it's 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 much more common so but I, I never actually thought I could make this a career until I signed my first track with Armada and then I'm like hmm maybe there is a possibility for me I, that was never really my focus I just did it because uh, 
I wanted to. I had fun making music, you know, music DJing, uh, just sharing the music. I, I, I if there's a, like a new track I found out about, I wanted to share it with my friends. That's why I started DJing, and and I, I love music in general. It's not only like the production. I love classical music. Uh, I don't only like dance music. There's a lot of different uh, different kinds of music I enjoy. Uh, I did guess, Armin discover you, or did you someone else at the label? Um, I. I think the, the the one who gave me my first break was uh, Tiesto. Uh, he had this uh, radio show on uh, Radio 538, which is like the, I would say, probably like the biggest commercial radio station in Holland, or one of the. And uh, he had this, this, this um, in his radio show, he had this part, which was 15 minutes of fame. So you could send in your, like... Uh, Your, your mix for 15 minutes and then he would, every week he would pick out like someone who won and, and they would air that those 15 minutes of uh, music and so it, it could be anything like music from others or your own music uh, I just put like three of three or yeah I think three of my tracks in there you know you could get away with uh, six minutes seven minute tracks back then um, and that aired and then suddenly there was some uh, Interest from from in, from an international label, uh, Gareth Emery's 5AM Records back then, who wanted to sign uh, two of the tracks. So I was like, yeah, that was I think that was the the first breakthrough, and he started playing my tracks as well. Uh, but I think things took off when when Armin uh, uh, got behind me and started playing my music. Like everything I released, he would play. Wow! So, uh, did so you that feel was like a the big, world big shifting. Push. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely, you know, as 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 somebody who's, you know, just made music in his, his uh, in his, in his attic uh, without any idea what to do, having somebody like Armin with that big a reach, you know, his radio show, there's millions of listeners worldwide every week. If you get played on there, then suddenly a lot of people have heard your name. And, and he was really early to that format of podcasting, yeah, and radio shows, mix shows, and streaming in general. I mean, he's 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 a great producer, great DJ. But I, I think his like what what defined him was the radio show, like two hours every week. That's that's a big task, and he does it and he does it live now, like uh, recording it in two languages. Oh, just uh, two languages? Yeah, Dutch for the Dutch radio. I didn't and realize uh, that. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a, it, he works. I don't know anybody who works that hard. You know, it's like, a, and he's and he's such a nice guy as well. So uh, I have a lot of respect for for Armin. I think it's so funny that people think with club music, they just focus on the clubs and they don't think about the role of radio in the mm -hmm. process. And radio is how I got into electronic music. That's how I discovered it because there was no blogs to find the music. I lived in the country in Vermont and the uh -huh. radio waves reached out of the country. It was a college radio station. And, you know, your experiences with getting discovered on radio, it's, it's a whole other role. I think people forget that radio has that influence and that reach. And now reach, you know, it's, yeah. it's streaming and it's changing. It's like, what is radio now? It, it's, it's changing a lot now. It, it's more, people can choose, they have more, uh, you know, uh, options. It, it's, it's like radio is like, uh, from, from back in the day, it's like a one-way medium, right? So it's just, there's a sender and there's a receiver. But nowadays it, it's much more like interactive and... Uh, Which, you know, is great as well, but f especially like back in the day, radio was the only way to get yourself known to a bigger audience. 
Yeah, because the the cost to import records, uh, to send promos and do test pressings. Remember with vinyl, it yeah. was it's insane, and it would just it would break in the mail, and you'd have to fax back your <laughs> like reactions. I, yeah, that's, that's your experience. I, Did you I skip w- that era? The, yeah, like I got into the, uh, when when it was already like kind of digital, but. Uh, I have lucky. like like two of my tracks on, on vinyl, which I was very happy about. I I remember like like pressing the label a little bit, like come on, can we get one of the tracks pressed on vinyl? Because I I started DJing on vinyl, but uh, when I was releasing it, it was already like CD and digital, right? No, yeah. It, the I think now you have so many of these niches that what is the identity of radio? I mean, you have satellite radio, you have podcasts or the most popular new form of radio it's almost become what am radio and talk radio was in the past mm-hmm. uh even though it's not limited to talk but it's i feel like everybody's connecting with a niche and connecting in a more honest way with something they love yeah versus broadcast was like here's what we got you listen when we feel like it and you're gonna love it and that's all you have and you have these limited stations to listen yeah. to yeah, i think that the that there's more uh, possibilities for like niche markets. I think that's a great development. You know, there's there's room for everything. So, and I think that's also kind of now with with artists. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, an artist like um, what's her name? Is it Res? That, that's yeah, Res. Re- she's huge here, right? But in Europe, I don't think anybody, well, not a lot of people, heard about her. But she has this niche following here, and it's so big. You know, it's she has that she's so interactive with her audience. And uh, it doesn't have to go through, yeah, like like a like a big radio station. It's they they know how to find her, you know, one way or another. She doesn't need the radio hits or no. And even what I'm seeing now too with some of the bass guys is they don't have to be dependent on big streaming numbers even, which is for us it's always like the gold standard, you know, for our kind of music, yeah, kind of artist. Everyone's judging your Spotify numbers, your monthly listeners. Yeah. There's always this like pressure, like followers, streams, yeah. Yeah. followers, and the, the label wants you to kind of do all the work usually, and then they throw some marketing dollars at it. Yeah, but <laughs> but it is refreshing to see that there are bass guys selling out the Shrine, selling out Red Rocks, big big venues, big hard ticket venues, and they don't have to have millions of monthly streams per month. No. So it's interesting. It's like, what's connecting there? I think my manager was saying Reddit is actually having a strong community on Reddit can move hard tickets. I think it's what you're saying. The, the key word is community. I think that's what, what's building these, these artists, you know, they have like a loyal following. Uh, and that's more important than, you know, millions of non-loyal followers. Right. Or like you have, you have that one hit wonder that, people are loyal to the song and not to the artist. That's a great, that just blows my mind. Like that somebody can be, have this huge hit, hundreds of millions of plays and the audience may not be connecting to the artist in any way and just knows the song and then they're going to move on to the next big thing. Like I never had like that big of a hit, you know, mainstream hit. I mean, obviously you had the the longest road. Was that your biggest? uh... I think that or or in the air, either one. Yeah. Did did you feel ever like that happened to you? Uh, they were, I think, hits within the dance world. I yeah, mean, it's different than like a, like a pop, like mainstream uh, hit. I, they never, I think, you know, it depends on the repetition of the plays, but the at the time, at least with Longest Road, when Dead Mouse remixed it, it was, I could hear it at every club I went to in Miami during yeah. Miami Music Week. It was so, it was such a crazy feeling. I think now it's, there's there's less songs that have that like this was the song of the conference or exactly uh, it's I think it changed a lot uh, I remember 
when everybody would play a certain track, but now everybody's kind of playing their own music, which yeah. I, I don't think is a bad thing. And actually, I think it's good that you know every because that was a, a big problem I think with, uh, with EDM, you know, uh, when when people say everything sounded the same, and it did to a certain extent. Everybody was playing the animals. playing it safe, playing the same hits, animals, yeah, you know, six we, sets in a row at a festival, yeah, tsunami, the, which were great yeah. productions, but uh, I think it's you know, it's very important that every artist is playing their own music. And and, uh, and I also think, like, if I give an advice to to upcoming producers who are trying to match a certain sound, you know, uh, the only way I think you're actually going to make a break is when you do something new, you know, and that hits. So try to be unique. I mean, it's easier said than done, but stay true to yourself, but also try to uh, make sure you have a unique element to your music because... It's, I think it's harder than ever to stand out now because there's it, it, making music isn't so hard anymore. There's tutorials everywhere. Uh, there's there's free platforms where you can get great plugins or sequencers, uh, samples. There's no uh, scarcity in the tools. The no. tools are so good, exactly. and the skill sets are being learned so much faster. I think it's like a two-year cycle now instead of ten years for becoming a producer. Yeah, I think so too. So, but then what what still is is important as ever is like you know stand out that's the that's the only way to to create a career career i think or, you, or be really it doesn't have to be like doesn't even have to be the music anymore you know some people are just amazing entertainers and they they thrive on that and that's you know that's great as well but just make sure there's something unique about it do you feel added pressure to be like a tiktok sensation or to make entertainment and content that has to reinforce the music to do something more than just the music and DJing? Um, well, you know, I don't feel that that pressured, but it is important to be present on social media. Honestly, like, for me, uh, if it weren't for my, my career as an artist, I really wouldn't be that much on Spotify or Instagram. Or sorry, I mean, uh, sorry, Facebook or Instagram. Right. Uh, for me, it's about the music mainly, but you know we have to realize nowadays it, it is more about more than the music music is an element it's it's always going to be the most important element but not as important as what it used to be i think it's not enough to just release it and cross your fingers no yeah i was always a bit naive like that you know like just make good music that'll be it you know and yeah. even when i had my tracks played by a lot of the djs in the trance scene uh, Armin would play every track of mine. He would play it live everywhere. A lot of people knew my name, but I wasn't getting the DJ bookings. So I was like scratching my head, like how can I uh, go from just being the producer also to being the DJ? Um, and then at one point I made the track Requiem, uh, which was a crossover between trance, big room and classical, uh, which hadn't been done at the time. And then suddenly that was like a new wave and then boom, everything happened at once. You know, it's like, wow. it, it, it was weird for me. Like suddenly everybody was like, hey Mark, how are you? Want to work together? And well, for me, it was like a very gradual process for a lot of people perceive it as like a sudden boost or something. You know, it's like... It always looks like an overnight success. It's the 10-year yeah, overnight yeah. success. Yeah, exactly. Had That's you been making music? How long were you making music before things really clicked? Um, I think, well, from making music to my first release on Armada was about, well, I have to calculate, <laughs> when did I, I think about like four years or something. Yeah. But I feel like after that, it took me uh, five years to 
get to like a good standard of quality of with my productions that I was happy with. But I think that's also the produ- the, the beauty of of production. Is you never stop learning. You know, you always there's always room to improve. Yeah. I I still feel like like my mixing mastering while maybe in 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 my scene is 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 considered uh, good. I think I think still, you know, I I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm doing. I'm just playing it by ear. Yeah, what's the finish line too? Like is Yeah, but are you no ever f- perfectly happy with the track? Do you get to a point where you're like, "Cool. It's it's good as it's going to be." Yeah, like I'm I'm a perfectionist. Like I can when I think that was the difference between me and some some other people in 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 my scene is I just stuck with the track longer you know if i felt it was worth it when when everybody would be finished i would sp- spend another day just making sure it's like the absolute best it can be am i ever really happy with like 100% happy no i don't think that's possible yeah i feel um, like you're just not nobody's really wired if you're really in this for life to make yeah. music uh, you're wired to be a little bit restless yeah in the process so all right so, so getting into the producer flow and the workflow of things so let's say you you're coming back from tour you've had your weekend shows you're starting out on monday and you're back home uh when are you getting up what's your workflow like like walk me through a day in in mark sixma okay so when i get back from touring i usually need a a day to like uh especially if it's like a overseas tour i need like a day it can be the day that i arrive home I need like at least like half a day to to balance out again. So I would just go outside. I live next to the forest, so I would just go for a run or a walk or just like uh, balance. Yeah, just for for the balance of it. Compared to the hectic tour life, I need to calm down a little bit. Uh, and then I usually I have my studio in my home as well. So I get up in the morning. Either I uh, go for a run, or or just go like go straight for breakfast and then. Uh, take my breakfast bowl into the studio, fire it up. And then it, it's not always the same. So if I'm working on a specific track, I'll just keep, uh, li- have a listen through it with the fresh ears that we talked about earlier. See if I'm liking everything. Uh, sometimes it, it's like, I, I can be pretty cruel if it's if I'm not convinced after working on it for like a day, then if it's not good, then I'm, I'm not going to spend any more time on it and just throw it away or leave it. Sometimes I leave it lying there. Like if there's, I didn't find the right way to make it work, but I still think the idea is, is good. I'll How are you starting the tracks? I always start with the, the 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 main part, the main drop or the main idea, like the riff. Uh, I always make sure everything that 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 is all like to my liking. And if I cannot if I cannot make that work, then it's no no worth like making the whole track, the whole arrangement, etc. But if it works, then I know the rest will just follow naturally. So you don't make the outro if you don't have the hook. No, <laughs> no, exactly. I just make the hook, and then then from there, uh, usually go to the break. And depending on what kind of genre I'm I, I'm making, uh, if it's like a club track, sometimes I have like an intro drop as well. Uh, then I work on that. And then I leave the the intro, outro, the transitions to the last. That's like my least favorite part. I guess it's for the most producers, like the in the build ups, the build ups, the effects. You know the, you know the, to make the track uh, polished. But the window dressing. Yeah, exactly. I can't stand doing that stuff. It drives me crazy. It's just all automation and clicking, and so they just throw in a cashmere sample. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, thank God for cashmere. He made Thanks, he made cashmere. that he made that a lot easier. Uh, but yeah, it's oh, it's, it's not my favorite. It's not the creative part. The creative part, the most fun part for me is the beginning when you're working on an, on an idea, and then the moment when you know you have something. It's not 
finished at all, but you know, you have something for me that's the, the most gratifying out of like the whole, the whole thing. And you have to keep chasing that feeling. Yeah, right? exactly. That, yeah, I guess. How is it for you? Is that when, when, what's the most fun part about it? Like the whole thing, including DJing and performing? I think it's when you know that there's something durable, something clicks, like it, it, the song develops legs. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. And it could be even in the concept form. I always love it when I have the vocal and I go, oh, this is special. This is different. And you know, I'll never finish a song unless I think it's a hit. Like I, everything I'm very confident in. So, you know, not everything could be a hit. But no, yeah, yeah. But, but you want to be. But you have to be. Confident. You have to believe it at least. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I love that feeling of goosebumps that you're just chasing that rush. And obviously that that little dopamine rush that never lasts. No. And that that's where the, the, the doubt real comes in. Comes in. Yeah. yeah. And the doubt like, um, oh, is it good enough or you know? And you just need some distance. And I think that's helped me embrace collaboration a lot more because you've got to get some more ears on it. I think if you're going to expect the whole audience to love it, you've got to work that song through some other ears and opinions and hopefully some with complementary skill sets. Yeah, I think on average, group decision-making is always better than uh, combining the individual decision-making. It's like it's been proven by research, like, like group yeah. uh, dynamics. So if yeah, two people like the track, the chances are... It's going to do better than if just one person likes a track. And I try to think of it too in stages too, because, you know, you don't want to make music for your management necessarily or be thinking like, will the fans like this? So I try to go, okay, please myself first. And then as I'm putting on my editor hat and I'm doing arrangement, I'm thinking of the situation where I might be playing it and seeing yeah. what would work there. And like those choices inform how I'm wrapping the song and structuring yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like steering towards which direction you're gonna yeah. wrap it up well yeah to be honest i've been a little bit guilty about like thinking about about the effect before the actual track or the idea like i want to make a club banger and then i start start making trying to make it something like this you know but my best ideas just came when i'm just sitting down either just playing on the piano for a melody or or, or messing around with the synth that you just tried you know just bought uh, and then those are usually the when I come with my best ideas. I think so. When not, you're not, not thinking, premeditated. Yeah. Although I can also, you know, the argument for like having a sustainable career, there also needs to be like a red line, like like thin red line, like through all your tracks that people recognize. So going like completely, uh, how do you say, like in left field, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes can be a bit, you know. Uh, confusing for for fans and I know also if you're and a DJ algorithms, for, yeah, and and <laughs> promoters and yeah, everybody. So it's the stay in your lane philosophy. It's it's hard. Yeah. It's hard too because I think do you, if you have eclectic tastes, how do you present that exactly. under your brand? Yeah, so it's, if you do, so it, that's the difference between if I would be a hobbyist and and now I'm pursuing it as a professional career, I would probably do more like experimental things for sure if i was just doing it as a hobby but uh but i i still you know for me it's a balance of you know keeping myself happy and also m having a sustainable career you know it's it's, it's a trade-off you know but uh, not necessarily a bad thing in my opinion it is hard because you can't be totally free spirit exactly creative yeah. type i mean people think that's how you make the best art but somebody has to come and be the editor and there is a business to it yeah it, it is a business in the end, you know? Yeah. It does have to work for other people. Uh, and, and I've seen some artists that they go too inwardly focused, too experimental, and 
it doesn't sound, people say, oh, this doesn't sound like your old stuff, whatever. Well, that's, that argument gets very stale because artists have to evolve and change their sound. Yeah. But, but I always think you've got to have one foot in the past of your past productions and one foot in the future. Exactly. How do you, how do you balance that? It's tough. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the trick. Uh, well, you can also do it in a way, the way I'm doing it right now is because I'm trying to make a little bit more like accessible tracks as well, more vocal, vocally focused, whereas before I was more like club focused. Um, I, I try to do it track by track. So I have one track, which is like true to my roots, sort of say, and then I do one track, which is more like a vocal track. And then I go back to a sort of like A, B, A, B, A, B, you know? It's because it's hard to have both uh, working at the same time. At like the same, it's a yeah. Vocal banger, huge EDM drop. Like it's, you can, but. You have it, to make choices, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you, you, there's no, yeah. You cannot have a, everything in one track. You need to make decisions. And that's also like, and that's totally fine, you know, for, for a track. A track cannot be like 10 things at once, at least in my opinion. Right. Yeah, you need to make choices and you need to, f you know, focus as well, you know, it's with, with a mix down as well, you know. If you have like uh, 30 totally different elements in your track, uh, you lose the, the spotlight, you know. You can have a spotlight on, on maybe two or three things and the rest is supportive of that. And if you have like 20 spotlights on, there's no longer a spotlight, there's no longer a focus because everything is, you know. I love the quote, the arrangement is the mix down. Arrangement is the mix sound. Because then you're you're providing yeah. that spotlight and, and what's being what's in focus, what's blurred you out. You make decisions, yeah. What do you do to focus certain elements besides muting things? There's any sort of treatments that you do to to bring other things into the background, push things back in space. Uh, reverb is a great way to to position things in your mix, I think. Um and volume obviously is a very yeah. important factor, the most obvious one, EQing as well. Uh, so if I, if I have like a, a lead sound, uh, if I usually layer my lead sounds, so I have like maybe like five layers, but there's always going to be one main one who has to carry most of the weight. So I'll make sure that one has the, the, the biggest range and frequency and the other ones I'm, I'm, I'm cutting everything I can out of their EQ curve without it starting sounding uh, artificial, but just to give it that one thing, the most, uh, attention. What instruments are your go-to right now, and what uh, plugins as well? Plugins. I'm I'm always a little bit like skeptical. Like, hey, do I need this new plugin? So I'm if I if I like something, I stick with that a lot. So uh, I still I still I'm probably one of the only ones, but I still like Silent One for its ease of use. Serum is is, is a great plugin as well. I, I still like Massive as well, though. It's it's. Uh, but mainly because I've gathered so many like good presets over the years that it's just like easy to to go back to. Spire, I also use a lot. But I think the what I'm changing now is I'm I'm starting to integrate more like uh, multi uh, multi sample ba um, instruments, like from the from the contact libraries you can get from uh, the complete bundles, bringing in some guitars and and like real like sample pianos. Um, I'm having a lot of fun, like Im implementing some more organic sounds into my my sound. Are you doing any distortion treatments, things like that? Do you have any go-to distortion boxes? Yeah, uh, for me, the 
the one I use on basses and uh, leads the most is uh, actually like a discontinued um, Cubase product. Oh, don't know uh, it's Quadrifos. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, you know about it. Like, uh, I, I've been thinking about using different sequencers, but there's no way you can use the Quadrifos in those. So, uh, also one of the reasons why I stuck to Cubase, I guess. You know, I, I told Steve Duda, because he makes the, he loves making the sort of the knockoff products in addition yeah, to yeah, the yeah. stuff that he makes his money off of, like, like OTT and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. what's the, the dimension expander from massive that he makes. It's like a free plugin. Uh, I want him to do uh quadrifies. And he said, Oh, you can just do it in Saturn. And I was like, I don't know. I think it sounds it's, still it's, different. It's different. Yeah. I have the Saturn as well, uh, which is, you can do way more with Saturn. Obviously you can, you have different, uh, different distortion per band. And there's like, a lot of EQing options, and which is much better than what you can do with quadrophus. But it's just it's just like a, its own kind of character. Even if you like turn it sort of off, it, it still does a little bit. You know, it's like so it's multi-band distortion. Yeah, multi-band distortion. Yeah. yeah. And are you? But very limited what you can do actually. But it's it just it has its flavor. I think it's also because I've used it so much. Uh, it, it's sort of became part of my sound, so it's a little scary not using it sometimes. You know. I feel like with all these cult tools and plugins are usually easy to use, yeah, get great results, and it really comes down to usability and workflow. For me, uh, workflow is is king. You know, uh, ease of use is the most important thing for production. You know, yeah. for that's why I love LFO tool by Steve. We were talking about Steve Axfer. Uh, LFO tool. I use it for all my side chaining, but also like, I use it sometimes for for LFO for for um, you know filter filter automations as well. Uh, it's just so easy to use, and you you know what I like about it, you can see what the compression is doing as well instead of just yeah. if you have a compressor and you side use it for side chaining, uh, you you sort of have an idea but you don't have that mental image and with LFO tool you have so. And when you're doing these distortion treatments and really processing the audio, are you keeping a philosophy of like, I'm going to leave the lows alone? Kind of like in Serum where you can just solo that and bypass the effects? Or are you, well, how if are you you're going with distortion, I, I usually avoid the lows uh, because uh, that can really, like, that, that, that nice gritty sound I, I think is mostly mids and, and highs. But when, when you do it to the lows, it, uh, it can cause a lot of unwanted, like, uh, yeah. Distortion, <laughs> like it like generates weird harmonics Clip. below the fundamental. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 for me, it's, it, I don't like it on lows that much. You know? So, like, you would process stuff above 150 or 200 hertz, something like that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then mostly when I I use it mainly on on leads, and then my leads anyway, I I try to bring down. I don't really need that to have them to have that like that sub, uh, that sub. So I, I probably everything about 200 even. I would say, yeah. Are you doing a lot of transient shapers, things like that, for the punch? I mean, your, your stuff sounds very punchy and present. Uh, sometimes, but uh, usually I don't use it. Like I, I try to to get it done. You can you do it like with with Silent One. There's like, you just do a little bit of, um, uh, just a little bit of uh, like ADSR, the the little bit of decay on the on the pitch, you know, pitch up, so you can get like a little bit of a tick. It's like. So doing it at the source, you prefer to get it, get the sound right at the source. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's yeah. Where, that's where I try to get the the punch from. But uh, and another another way I, I like to bring in, like if it's like more like like sustained uh, synths, like my big super saw chords. I think the key to make those punchy is actually the the compressor I use, the VSC two. We were talking about it. Uh, Vertigo, you know? yeah, Vertigo. 
just have like the, the little bit of the attack come through and then having it like compressed pretty like hard. So it, it actually sounds punchy, but it's not because you, you, yeah, you just kind of like bring down everything after the initial attack. It's just happening very quickly. Yeah. Very I feel like that's all audio is like this illusion. That but not just too happens. quickly. But right. not too quickly because then you lose the transient. So you want the transient to come through and then, yeah. Do you use that approach with side chaining as well where you have a little a little tick in the side chain or is it, you just, did, do, do you do quicker side chains or longer? Yeah. It depends on your source. Like I'm, I'm usually, I'm doing like, like longer, like halfway through the bar, uh, but not 100%. So, um, but now I'm for, for recent tricks actually I've been doing my like shorter ones. So but one of the other things where I um, where I use the, a fast one is when I'm doing uh, a kick and like a, a sub kick. So for like the, the big room sound, you know, you have the, the that long pumping kick. Actually, the the sub, I, I try to leave the, the the original kick, the main kick, intact as much as I can without removing too much of the lows. Uh, but I have to make sure it's like short. Uh, so I bring, I see how much I can get away, get away with on the the sub element of the, the the sub kick basically. So whenever the the other kick runs its course, then the sub kick will come up, and it will still sound like it hits straight away, but it doesn't actually. So it doesn't interfere with the other kick, so it doesn't clash. Are you side chaining the sub kick to the 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 body kick, or just feeding yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it, it's f- volume automating, but yeah, with LFO tool. Nice. Yeah, uh, that's what I use mostly. If I don't really use the, the, if I don't need a trigger, which is something else than like a four on the floor kick, I use LFO tool. Like volume automation for me is the yeah easiest yeah. way. Are you approaching stereo width in a way where you're hoping for good translation to festivals and clubs and those kind of sound systems where things are summing to mono, or is it less of a concern? And I actually I usually just play it by ear. Well, in the end of you know. I, I will A, B, like, if I put it on mono, if, if I lose any elements or not. And if I do, then I get back I get back to the project and see uh, what's causing the issue with the phasing, for instance, you know. Uh, so something disappears completely versus yeah, it, then just I'm, a then slight I'll, compromise. I'll, yeah. And also for my, I, I like to use, like, for, for the, the, the big room trans sound, I like to use, like, very big super sauce, detuned super sauce, also stereo, etc. But I always make sure there's, like, a, a mono element as well, which will just cut through... You might not hear it when it's in stereo, but in mono you'll hear it, you know, so... Yeah, I'm always curious how people are stacking that because those voices are just going to phase out. There's a whole bunch of phasing. It's kind of inherent, I think, to the... a little bit to the trend genre as well, but... um, But, yeah, just I check in the end if... If if I put it summit to mono, you have a a mono stereo thing on on the master... It's like I use a Cubase one, very simple, just to see if there's, a, yeah, if I'm missing out on something. So you could create kind of like a mono twin of it and have that detune sound be be tucked underneath, just so it's so that you have your mids there versus yeah. the sides. Yeah, yeah. But it's honestly, it's, it's I I don't really uh, worry about it that much. My lows as well. I have just this uh, plugin called. TP Bass Lane. It's a free plugin for Windows only, though, but uh, where you can sum everything below a certain hertz to mono. So you don't have to worry that much about keeping your mono, like mono, uh, but, but sorry, your, your, your sub frequency is mono. You can just do it with that plugin. And how are you referencing tracks? Are you just dragging them into the DAW or are you using um, 
A B comparisons, like some of the sample magic, or what do you uh, I'm, I'm, I, I play it by ear. I don't drag it in. Like I don't analyze the. I just listen, see what uh, I just. I have a few good reference tracks, which I know always sound good in the club and sound good on my computer. And by now, if you know, if you made a lot of tracks in the same room, uh, on the same speakers, you get very familiar with it. So you know if if it sounds like this in my home, it will sound good in the club. But recently, I changed and my home and my my studio space and my my speakers, which is probably not a good thing to do. Usually, it's better to do just one of the two, so yeah. you can slowly make a transition. So now I've been surprised a little bit when I, when I test something live, and I'm hmm. It's usually the sub. The rest is always easy, but the, the low frequencies are always like the hardest. I think it's like are all the octaves present. I, yeah. Sometimes I'll forget to add the that extra low octave, like the zero octave. It depends what standard you're using yeah but it's having that all present and do you need the more musical octave or more the sub octave and balancing those can be tricky depending on the key yeah. of the song right if it's c then who knows if every key yeah if you like do you do you really like look at the frequency curves and uh, like the the uh, the hertz amounts do you look at that for like uh, making adjustments in your mix or do you always do it like by ear uh, a little of both, but I've definitely found that you would think in a live environment that it could reproduce 20 hertz and go really low, and it these systems just struggle. I mean, I feel like yeah. I love, I just always have 4A in my mind, like F minor, I always think, because tracks just hit so hard, and I try to make songs in that key, just it's a little easier. Um, uh, I don't have to transpose the kick. and It also makes the mix, mixing and mastering easier, I guess, if you're always working the same key. Yeah. Then you know what what is yeah you, know, you know a kick which sounds good in that in that key, but I think it's fascinating to me because there's different songs I'll work on and I'll get them loud and it's effortless and then there's others where it's a fight and I'm like what yeah. is the difference yeah. and it's really all the material that's in there right yeah it's it, but it, it, yeah it, it's it's like sometimes it's a search like what is the element that's eating all the headroom you know like yeah. And it's surprising. Sometimes it can be just a tiny little volume fade on something, or it's a tiny little transient, or it's phase. like a like a ride can be like if you have like a full drop, and then you have a, just a ride on it. Not that hard, not that loud, but it's it's completely like yes. This it can it can be the tiny elements that are causing the the biggest problems. All these things that create the, the sonic illusion of loudness. It's also like loudness curves, the Fletcher Munson curve really affects things. But it's so interesting mixing for streaming now, and how you, it's great in some ways right you have more breathing room to work with yeah. uh, like with our song you know it's like what how loud should this be because you know you can play it in the club but it's it's a little more radio focused yeah so then you don't have to worry that much about pushing it to the the max yeah what do you think now in terms of trends happening and and where edm's at um what's what's happening right now what's going to happen the rest of this year well actually i think um I think it's we're in a very healthy spot where anything goes, um, but so I, for me that's the perfect the perfect spot to be. So I have no idea what's going to happen now. You know, it's it's exciting. You know, I whereas a few years ago it was everything was kind of like everyone everybody was pursuing the same thing, and now everybody's just more and more embracing their own diversity. And I think it's a great space to be at. But yeah, doesn't it, don't you feel like it's like the biggest question mark so far is this year feels like the most mysterious year in terms of what's going to happen with DJs and the EDM world. I think so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, especially with 
you know, Hardwell still in sort of quasi retirement, uh, Swedish House Mafia. I have no idea. I've been waiting for the music. I don't yeah, know where it is. Uh, what, what's happening with that? Like, I'm curious. Know. We'll have to get Axwell down here. But. <laughs> yeah, well, ring him up. <laughs> he listens to the radio show. Apparently, uh, um, it's. I'm really curious to see. Well, it was weird because Hardwell was saying that you know when he feel, gets that feeling again, he'll come back and and DJ again. And it's been a little while. And yeah, I think he's enjoying. Uh, It's time off, and I mean, time is not time off. He's he's still uh, focusing on making music and running his record label. Yeah. I'm surprised he even took a break from making music too. Like it took six months or a year oh, or something. Okay, yeah. I didn't even know that till recently. But it, it is nice to feel like a human and come back and have a life for a little while yeah. beyond the road in the studio. I think it's it's a really tricky balance to when, strike when you're at that level. You know, of where where he was at, it's 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 very intense. You know, there's there's almost no room for your own personal life. And for me, it would be too much. You know, I like to keep the balance. Uh, to have it like to live for for your project is yeah maybe a bit too much. I always wonder though, like, can you, if you were him, could you take off a couple months and be good? Like, take off three or four months? It's it's hard to dis- to to to. Uh, yeah, we can talk about all we want, but we we don't know how it is to be in. The, I, at least for me, I don't know how to right. be in that position where a lot of people depend on him as well. You know, to just take a step back. Yeah, there's always that team pressure. Where, yeah, and you you have your company, your your record label, right? So. If you're taking a step back, it's going to have impact on everybody who works there, you know. So it's, uh, but I have a lot of respect for him making that decision. Yeah, that was really smart. I mean, yeah. the, obviously seeing what happened with Avicii, and uh, I remember I, I used to talk to Avicii every now and then. I'd see him at festivals, and then it was so hard to stay in touch with him. He was sort of walled off by a team of people. Yeah, and and then you become much more vulnerable in that state because I don't think if you're not hanging out other like with like-minded artists as much, and maybe it's You're lonely on the road. You're, you're in a bubble. You know? yeah. You, yeah. Like for me, when I saw the documentary for the first time, it was like, that was kind of a shock to me. I had no idea it was like that bad. Yeah. yeah. It, you I don't mean, know because he's sheltered yeah. from that world. And then there, people are putting business interests above sanity. Like I think, you know, if I don't think he enjoyed performing at all, right? It's like... Right, he was, was a like studio sort of, guy. They were just telling him like, you have to do this. Uh And he was doing it, but you know, I think that that was the the cause of all the the problems. Yeah, most of the the problems. Yeah. So what's next for you? You you're here on tour, playing shows. Yeah. Flew all the way from you had Estonia and then Estonia yesterday yeah. and here. Yeah. So uh, yeah, flying back tomorrow to the studio. I always try to fly back as soon as I can, just you know, to to be back in the studio, maximize my studio hours, uh, because you know, with all the touring. Uh, it, it's it can be great to to stay at places, but then you don't get the the hours in the studio that that I really want. I don't like to work on the road as much, so I need to be home to actually be productive. Yeah, don't you feel like you have to have a certain amount of time in the studio where you're kind of greased and your your ears are in studio mode to be productive? Like you can't just come back and work one day. And I I like to yeah be at least working on two or three days in a row otherwise yeah sometimes i can do it if there's like a deadline or something and and i have the idea of what i want to do i can be very efficient but i prefer to take a little bit more time yeah, yeah if, if i if i push something too much then uh I, i like it my i like my tracks better when i have a little bit of time to work on it and also not finish it in one go just work on it a little bit and then leave it alone for a bit work on something else and then get back to it let it breathe yeah yeah, yeah. okay 
Anything else as we wrap up? Uh, any advice for upcoming producers or mistakes that you see people make? Uh, well, what I talked about already, like um, imitating other people is a great way to learn the art, but not for making a career. So if you want to distinguish yourself, you need to come up with uh, something unique, but also, you know, stay true to yourself. I think that's uh, actually great with, with social media right now. And then as we were talking about, with like the, the, the smaller communities, there's room for, for niches because of the internet. People, like-minded people can find each other. Uh, we're not dependent on only like, like one-way uh, media, one-way um, broadcasting media. Uh, so try to stay true to yourself, but um, you know it's always good to gather opinions of other people as well. Like when it comes to making your music, I remember in the beginning I thought I made the most amazing tracks, and then uh, sent it to all the labels. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then the DJs, and then uh, and then sometimes I'm I'm listening back to some of my my first production and I'm like oh my god what was I thinking but so it's you always good differently in your mind yeah like from yeah. because I, I'm not educated enough in, in, in production to distinguish between a good production and, and like a, a bad production that takes time as well you have to train your ears so it's always good to gather opinions but don't think opinions are the truth I just when I put my track out to other people for their opinion I always respect the opinions I'll, I'll take it into consideration but it's not an absolute truth so in the end you need to make the decision yourself But I always think it's interesting you get feedback from a team member or manager or an agent or somebody I usually don't have my agents reviewing the stuff they're too busy just getting bookings Yeah, <laughs> but it is funny because it's easy to get defensive on stuff and and maybe that's the advice the track needs and you don't know it yet. And sometimes their opinion is bullshit and it's hard to know because they can be they could steer you down the wrong path or it could be really helpful constructive feedback. I mean there's a big uh, difference between constructive feedback and just something like no, I don't like it. I mean right. that's always the that's, problem, right? Yeah. You can't articulate what the yeah. problem is or like I'm just not feeling it or it's it's getting there. So I, I think it's <laughs> I think it's best to do it actually like also send it to some uh, some some peers, you know, other producers, uh, you know, help each other out, give give feedback on constructive feedback on on each other's tracks. But in the end, remember, you know, in, it, there's no right or wrong. It's just you, know, you need to make that decision. But you know, if if more people like it, if you can can incorporate some of their feedback, chances are you're going to have a track that will be liked by more people. Yeah, and I've always liked that about the Dutch scene too, where it's very collaborative. I feel like everybody helps each other. To an extent, I mean, there's always yeah. everybody has their own business to build. But, of course, but yeah. um, I think for a while in the states it was very territorial. Everyone was like doing their own thing. Like I'm going to get mine, and everyone wanted their slice of the pie, and they didn't want to share secrets. But I think there's this renaissance of learning. Like people want to share things. There's no secrets anymore. There's some yeah. secrets, but I think people are. It's way more collaborative now and for way sure. more fluid. Yeah, and that's why. I, People like Kashmir, for instance, uh, we mentioned him earlier. He's he he just wants to make as, as much good music as possible. He doesn't care about his secrets. He's just asking questions, telling uh, people how he does it. You know, openness. You know, I really yeah. I think it was funny to see. I've heard a lot of producers like Kashmir and Oliver saying that they were concerned about releasing their sample packs at first when they thought of it because it's like, oh, these are my songs. These are my babies. Yeah, someone will copy my sound, but people end up using them in completely different ways 
And it really shows that how cool it is that it can be this, you can be open source and not give up your business or your sound. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so as well. Yeah. Great. hundred well, percent. Anything else we didn't cover before you take off? You got a big show tonight. Um, yeah, no, uh, check out our song. <laughs> yeah. It's literally, it's called our song. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Cool. All right. Thanks for taking the time, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. There you have it. My interview with Mark Sixma. So great to have him this week. Great episode with him talking about his workflow, his process, his upbringing in Breda, Netherlands, and really interesting point about how he talked, uh, how Tiesto changed the idea of what it meant to be a DJ and an artist. Now it changed how the crowd physically faced the DJ as the artist instead of it just being only about the music and a faceless DJ. So really interesting point there. Hopefully you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back again next week with a new one for you. So thanks for tuning in. This is Airwave with Morgan Page. Airwave is brought to you by RME Audio. Innovative, user-friendly, and high-quality digital audio solutions, RME offers a comprehensive range of audio interfaces, converters, and mic preamps, all based around its unique and innovative core technologies. Multi-platform connectivity across Windows and Mac OS and iOS class compliance has earned RME a global reputation for providing support to all users on all platforms. Visit rme-usa.com to learn more. Thank you.